Hi, I'm Lori Feathers, a bookstore owner and writer in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Sam Jordison, a publisher from Norwich in the UK. And this is Across the Pond. A podcast for readers of fiction eager to discover the most discussed and anticipated books on both sides of the Atlantic. All right, let's dive in. Hello and Happy New Year. Welcome to the first Across the Pond of, let me get the year right, 2022. Already 2022. (laughs) Happy New Year, Sam. Yeah, thank you, Laurie. Same to you. What's happening over there? Well, I want to talk about things that we're looking at this year and I'm really excited about our lineup of of authors. My God, there's so many great books that are coming out in 2022. (laughs) And I've been really kind of making my list and trying to schedule things in. And I think we're going to have a really exciting year. But before we turn to this year, I want to just kind of toot our horn a little bit (laughs) about a piece of news from last year. Right before Christmas, Across the Pond was named by the magazine Kirkus Review as one of the top five podcasts for book lovers. Wow, that was such a that was such a pleasant and I don't know, almost to me shocking, <laughs> shocking <laughs> surprise. But really, really kind of a nice a nice way to end the year. What were your thoughts, Sam? Yeah, exactly the same. I was I was perhaps more surprised than I ought to have been, but it was lovely. <laughs> And it's it's just nice to know that someone's been listening and enjoying it. So that's a great feeling. Yes, I agree. It, it's a little bit validating and we're not going to not be humbled um, <laughs> going forward, but... But it is nice to get some get some recognition for the podcast. And thank you to all of the listeners out there that have been supporting the podcast, downloading our episodes, liking us, following us, all those nice things. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Yes, thank you. And I do want to say that I just said we weren't going to tutor our own horn too much, but I'm going to right now because two of our guests from last year, Caleb Azuma Nelson and Claire Fuller were winners of this year's Costa Awards in the UK. Open Water, which was which is Caleb's novel, won the first novel award, and Unsettled Ground with Claire Fuller, who we had on the podcast as well, won the novel award. Congratulations to both of them. We had a really good time talking to both of them. Tell me a little bit for U.S. listeners about the Costa Award. It's a pretty big thing in the U.K., isn't is it not, Sam? Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a serious prize. So Costa is a big chain of coffee houses. And this is one of the, one of the big prizes on the, the calendar. Uh, I think it's this £5,000 prize money, so it's significant. And it gets quite a decent amount of coverage. And it has the reputation of being for books that a lot of people are going to read and enjoy reading. So I really think they they help uh, boost sales and get these writers out to people, which is really you know a lovely thing. And it was it was so great talking to to Caleb and he at the at the start of his career and and speaking to him and knowing how seriously he took everything and how thoughtful he was about his work. And also, I mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth but he seemed you know quite dazed and surprised by by how well things were going but also very delighted and you know delighted that he was going to be able to have this career and this is a, another thing that's that's pushing him forward which is great and then Claire Fuller you know it's a wonderful book 
and she deserves all the recognition she's getting. So it's it's really feels like a good thing. Yeah, Unsettled Grounds was Claire's fourth novel, I believe. I read an interview of Caleb upon learning that he won the award, and they were talking about the fact that he had been working at an Apple store in the UK and had decided to kind of take the risk to quit his job. And he kind of camped out in the British Library every day and made himself write furiously and then put this book out into the world. And he said, you know, he just kind of closed his eyes and threw it out there and crossed his fingers. And wow, it's gotten, you know, it's gotten a really good response. And um, I'm really happy for both of them. Yeah, it's great. Yes. So there's also been, Sam, and maybe you can um, tell us a little bit about this, a recent survey talking about book prizes in general. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is a survey that uh, was carried out by Nielsen. Uh, Do you have Nielsen over in the US? Over here, they're a kind of book sales aggregator. Okay. They did a survey to discover the world's most important literary prize. I'm not quite sure who they asked and how, how they found this out. But uh, apparently, uh, the Booker Prize is the most widely recognized prize in the world. So more than the Pulitzer, which I have to say, I find quite surprising. Yeah, I think that they said that they, Nielsen interviewed publishers, writers, booksellers, and media. So I think those were, I don't think that they were um, kind of asking just general readers. I thought it was kind of cute as well that there was a book prize that commissioned this survey, but is remains unnamed. And who knows whether it was the Booker Prize or one of these other prizes like the National Book Award here in the US or someone else that was hoping for a different result here. But I think I've I've mentioned previously on the podcast that I feel that at the bookstore with people, customers coming in, um, they're very swayed by books that win the Booker that get on the short list of the booker, even though I think it's it's seen and for a long time was only kind of a UK thing. And maybe it's been helped because in more recent years, they've allowed US authors and books to be considered as well. But it's a big deal here. Yeah, good. That's interesting. I mean, I remember when it changed over to the US and I have to admit, people like me were, were grumbling about it and saying, what's the really? point of being... Really? <laughs> yeah, I was like, you know, the US has already got the Pulitzer, so what's the point of being a, a second-rate Pulitzer? And, you know, looking at it cynically, it, it felt like uh, something they were doing to please their sponsors and to get more sponsorship money. But, well, it seems to have worked. So <laughs> maybe I should eat a few of my words from the past. <laughs> Well, thank you for letting us participate in the Booker, Sam, uh, <laughs> on behalf of authors in the United States of America. That's not what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> and I do believe we've we've made pretty good showing since we've yeah. been in. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the worries, you know, when you're up against Don DeLillo. That <laughs> <laughs> I think you guys still um, keep it pretty competitive. <laughs> one of the things that the article or the survey and the discussion around it talked about you know, the way that some of these prizes drive book sales and that that's kind of seen as really the motivator for a lot of people, a lot of publishers, I guess, to submit books for these prizes. Um, Do you have any thoughts about how 
that's helped book sales of um, books that you've published at Galley Beggar? Yeah, it, may, it makes a difference. Uh, it can really, it can really help move things along. And uh, you know, getting a book on the Booker shortlist, as we did with Ducks New Report, made a huge difference. For instance, um, early on when we were just starting out. Uh, we had a book called The Girl is a half One Thing by Ema McBride that won a big prize over here called the Women's Prize. And it made a big difference for that. And other prizes make, make a huge difference as well. Um, they all do. The, the Republic of Consciousness Prize, which is perhaps has slightly smaller coverage at the moment, but it's very significant on people who love books and, and who treasure them. So we always get sales from that there are all kinds of important other things about prizes as well not least writers getting the recognition they deserve and putting the conversation about books into the public eye it's a good way of, of pushing that um you know not just in terms of sales but just of keeping the idea that books matter and they're current and there's an ongoing conversation is, is part of the function they serve i think well, thank you for mentioning the Republic of Consciousness <laughs> Prize because you knew I was going to jump on that. This is our inaugural year of having the prize in the U.S. and Canada. And uh, so we're really excited. I don't think we're going to become the most prominent prize this year overtaking the Booker. But um, I'm really happy that we're going to be able to do that prize here. But I've got a question for you. Okay. This is something I've always wondered about. I've always been amazed as a bookseller at the astonishing speed in which uh, once shortlists and winners of prizes are announced, the book comes in with that little sticker on the cover that says shortlisted for blank prize, winner of blank prize. Do the publishers make those little stickers or does the prize provide those to you guys? And how does that work? Hey, yeah. <laughs> it's not straightforward i can't give you a really simple answer there's a bit of both sometimes the publishers do it sometimes the prize provides and quite often the prize will provide a template so for instance the booker will give you a template so that you have their logo in the right way and you use that and it's it's a complicated thing as as you've hinted in terms of logistics and getting things ready on time and uh may, at the long listing stage it's it's perhaps not so vital to be timely or even though you you really have to start moving once you learn you've been long listed for a prize but once you're shortlisted you really have to have all kinds of things in place in case you win for instance so one of the things about the booker prize and i imagine it's the same with lots of other big prizes is you know there are six books on the shortlist and they all have to be ready to go as soon as the announcement is made. So you you have to have complicated conversations with printers about if it wins, you will press the button. And ah. Yeah. So All these contingencies. Contingencies, yeah. making sh And also making sure there's enough books in the shops before the announcement to fill that gap before they're printed. Yeah, there's all kinds of things going on. Well, and I can't imagine how complicated this must be for a small publisher. I mean... Galley Beggar, you guys are magnificent, but let's face it, it's you and your lovely wife and co-director, <laughs> Ellie. And so like, it's got to be a different scenario for you guys to like coordinate all this than it would be for Penguin Random House. Um, to an extent. I don't know. Um, what do I... 
I, I mean, yes, it's an awful lot of work for for Ellie in particular, who, who <laughs> manages a lot of things with the printers. But I, I mean, essentially, the books are going through the same factory in the same way. So we're equally as equipped to, to get them out there. And we've just got to make sure we have everything right, like the other publishers do. And I think it, now we have, you know, 10 years behind us and a lot of experience. And, and we know how these things operate and can get things lined up nicely early on it it was was more difficult for us and you know we didn't know the landscape as well so i think if you're thrown into it it can be very complicated and confusing you know by the time in the normal run of things you get to these these big prizes it's it's kind of okay because you're there and set up of course it's frantic and there's there's all sorts to do but that's the same for everyone it's exciting as well i mean it's a it's nice happy thing to frantic. Have. Yeah. Good, good busy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought we'd close out the news segment today, Sam, with this bizarre story <laughs> that ran in The Guardian about a phishing scam. And this has to do with a person or maybe multiple people that are kind of imposters pretending to be from particular publishing houses or prize committees or something and obtaining early manuscripts of books from really famous authors. Yeah, it's a really it's a really strange thing. It's been going on for years that someone has been or some people have been trying to get hold of manuscripts by people like Margaret Atwood, Sally Rooney, um, before they've come out, generally, it seems to be. And I, and the assumption has always been that they've been quite successful. They've, they've got a few. They've been caught a few times. For instance, there are people within publishing houses who have been contacted by what seems to be a scout, for instance, saying, I want this manuscript. And then they phone the scout and spoken to them about it, the real scout. And that person, of course, knows nothing about it because it's been a fake email. And a, a lot of this scam seems to, in fact, have been working on just using insider knowledge of the industry. So knowing who to ask and knowing the language. And, you know, for instance, little things like instead of asking for a manuscript, using the, the letters MS, which is the kind of shorthand people within the industry would use. And then just changing small things in each. So writing from a fake email address. And instead of, say, coming from randomhouse.com, it's come from randornhouse.com. <laughs> so, you, you know, your eye doesn't see it on the page and you assume it's the real person. But it hasn't been. And, um, you know, sometimes this person or people have been caught out. And sometimes the assumption has to be they've got hold of these manuscripts. And in fact, there are even stories as a fantastic article in the vulture that I, I would urge people to read because it's really fascinating that came out in august last year of a journalist that had spent a long time uh, reeves weiderman this journalist trying to find out what was happening and who had a suspect that really seemed to be doing this but it turned out that the suspect who isn't named wasn't the person who has now been arrested and you can tell by the way i'm going around in circles all of this is frantically confusing and when you read this article it's just dizzying all the things that were going on and all the different subterfuges that were used to get hold of manuscripts the increasingly strange stuff that was happening with all these miscommunications of people thinking they've been contacted by someone and realizing it wasn't them and blah 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 and at the back of it all there's this the biggest mystery is what is the person doing with the manuscripts you know who does it help to have 
an early copy of Margaret Atwood's The The Testaments, for instance, what leverage do you get? And normally with these things, you can follow the money and that will give you your answer. But it's hard to know how how the money is made here. Yeah, the fellow that was arrested recently and that made the news is a guy named Filippo Bernardini, who was arrested in the United States, I believe. And he's an Italian citizen who worked at Simon & Schuster in the UK. So he did, either does or at one time did have, like, I guess, legitimate publishing credentials. But you're right, this, this Guardian article about his arrest really doesn't have an answer for what the motivation here is. And there's some speculation because there doesn't seem to be a, much of a monetary benefit that it might just be kind of a prestige thing that, you know, someone's able to, I don't know, read an early copy or say they've got an early copy. I don't know. It's all quite strange. It is strange. And I suppose the one of the unpleasant things about it is so much of the publishing industry is run on trust and, you know, these shared relationships and this tacit understanding that you're not going to do this kind of thing. And, you know, if you if you share a manuscript, you're doing it in good faith. You know, there are there are all the ancillary concerns about copyright threat and, and people putting things up on sites that steal material and give it away for free. But it's also this this other thing of you know, you don't show a writer's dirty washing in public. I mean, dirty washing is perhaps a, a foolish way of putting their, their work in progress, but they don't, there's a reason you don't publish the work in progress. They want people to see the finished thing. And it does feel like a betrayal, particularly of writers and, and their process and uh, the things that are necessarily kept behind the scenes because. The, the things that are being shared are not necessarily the things that the writers want to share with the world. It seems that there should be a way to kind of make the communications between the authors and their editors and the publishing company that's going to publish the work kind of more secure and, you know, I don't know, password protected or something, you know, so that so that no one is kind of soliciting this or giving giving it out unintentionally to someone that shouldn't have it. I mean, yes, perhaps, especially if this kind of thing continues. But I think that's one of the the big sadnesses about this story is that there hasn't been a need for that before because so much of it is done on trust and mutual understanding and in a spirit of openness in a way, but it's a spirit of openness that can, can only work if people don't betray that. It's a funny story and it's a crazy story and it's a very baffling and confusing story. And I imagine we're going to learn more about it as time goes on, especially if the person who has been arrested uh, goes to trial or anything like that. But it's a very odd episode. Yeah, indeed it is. All right, Sam. Good talking to you. Yeah, you too, Laurie. Thanks. Okay, so Laurie, this week we've got a fascinating novel that you persuaded me to read. So the story is that during a conversation we had a few weeks ago now about John le Carre's Silverview, you mentioned the novelist Javier Marias. And I don't know if, if anyone picked it up on the podcast, but I knew next to nothing about this novelist 
apart from the fact that I should know more about him. So, for instance, the great Dan Wells, the publisher at Biblioasis in Canada, had urged me to read All Souls, one of his novels, and I'd picked it up and had a copy making me feel guilty sitting on my desk. In fact, it's it's still right next to my microphone now. I can see it. <laughs> and I'm going to read it because now you have persuaded me to read Fever and Spear, which is volume one of his Your Face Tomorrow trilogy. It's wonderful. And I want to stress that from the top. It's a, it's a really remarkable book that was unlike anything I've read before, I think, which I am always fascinated by. And it was engrossing and perplexing and intriguing. And I'm going to be asking a lot of questions about those particular aspects about it, I think, because even though I enjoyed it, I want to keep stressing that I did enjoy it because I, didn't re- I don't think <laughs> I fully understood it or or really know what's going on. So my big question to you is, is going to be, what's going on? But, <laughs> but maybe we should start, if you could tell us a bit about this author, Javier Marias. Yeah, so Javier Marias is a Spanish author, and he's his work has been brought into the English-speaking world by a wonderful translator, Margaret Jewel Costa, who I believe, without many exceptions, has translated almost all of his work into English. He's the author of many novels, and I think we've got 12 or 15, actually, in English, I absolutely adore this author. He's been kind of on all of those prediction kind of betting forums. He's always kind of in there for the Nobel Prize. Hasn't gotten it yet, but I have to feel sure that, you know, at some point soon he will because I don't see, I haven't read everything by him by a long shot. But there just doesn't seem to be any kind of, in my mind, slacking off of the quality of his work and how compelling it is. So this is an author that as soon as something new by him becomes available in English, like I'm I'm wanting to grab it and read it and put put aside everything else. Perhaps it's my taste in authors. A lot of people compare him to Henry James, and I know a lot of folks hate Henry James out there. I happen to like most of Henry James, and I do see some similarities in just kind of the interiority of his language and how very perceptive and attuned it is to gestures and and descriptions and kind of a mood and a style that is in a way Jamesian, but I think that Moraeus has kind of got a unique kind of category that you could call all of his own as well. So I was really thrilled when you took the bait to read a book by him with me, Sam. And the one that I picked for us to talk about, you're right, is the first of a trilogy. The trilogy is Your Face Tomorrow, and this first volume is Fever and Spear. So getting back to the question that I think that you might have asked as well is, what the heck is this book about, right? That's the big question, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Try and explain Um, this. (laughs) Yes. So the book is about a, a man, I would say, probably... I don't know whether they give his age. I I imagine him as early 40s. And he's a Spanish man and he's living in London. He's back in London again after living there sometime in the past. And the reason that I think precipitates this visit to London or time living in London is that he's had some kind of irreconcilable differences or split with his wife, Louisa. 
and he's got two children with her in Spain. And so he's kind of alone in London and he doesn't have a lot of friends and acquaintances. But one of the people that he does know is this gent named Wheeler. And Wheeler is, according to our protagonist, and his name is Jaime Diaz, or Deza, sorry, Jaime Deza. Jaime uh, knows Wheeler because uh, Wheeler knew Deza's friend at Oxford, who was one of his teachers, a, a man named Ryder. So we've got Deza communicating with Wheeler in London, and Ryder has since been uh, passed. He's deceased. And the two gentlemen have a relationship where they get together every once in a while. So one day, Wheeler calls up Deza and says, hey, I'm having a dinner party. Would like you to come. And in particular, you know, I just want you to know that there's this guy, Tupra, that's going to be there as well. And so Deza kind of thinks that that's a little strange. And he, perhaps if anything, there's kind of some over interpretation <laughs> that Deza and really all the characters do in in this book and a lot of Moraes's books. You know, there'll be a statement that would seem so simple, direct, and straightforward, but these characters just kind of like dwell on it and think of all the repercussions and and it all becomes kind of very mysterious and imported with a lot of or infused with a lot of import when you're not so sure why someone would be making such a big deal about a simple statement like that. Anyway, Deza shows up at the party and does meet this guy, Tupra. And there are a lot of people at this party, um, including a guy that's, let's just call him a jackass from Spain, who kind of who kind of globs on to Deza because, you know, you're a Spaniard too, and we're the only two here. And so, so the party kind of goes on for quite a long time. But then what's more significant than the party itself almost is this discussion that Wheeler and Deza have after the party that evening um, when they're kind of having a nightcap and kind of winding down from the party and Deza's going to spend the night in town at Wheeler's apartment. Wheeler kind of starts talking about Ryder and their relationship and some things that happened to Wheeler during World War II and even the Spanish Civil War, and eventually Wheeler goes to sleep and retires for the evening. But Deza's like, I don't know, just fully alert now to all these things that he didn't know about Wheeler. And so he goes scurrying around Wheeler's extensive library, you know, opening up volumes that Wheeler has about the Spanish Civil War and other things, and just kind of just kind of investigating and it opens up a whole lot of questions for Deza. So to make a long story short, Deza eventually goes to work for this Tupra guy. And Tupra, it turns out, is works for the the British intelligence services. And Deza's hired in essence to kind of interview and then sometimes spy on people that he doesn't quite know why he's doing it, but he's asked to kind of interpret people. And a lot of the questions that he's asked about these people that he talks to or, or watches is, you know, well, what do you think they would do under certain circumstances? So I guess I'll leave it at that for right now, Sam, that very long <laughs> cool. discussion. But have I answered like any of your questions about 
helping you kind of wade through kind of a, a plot about this book? <laughs> Honestly, uh, is probably the answer. Okay. I mean, yes and no. I, I think, I hope all of that I took from the book. And we should say like that it has this strange quality of revealing itself very, very slowly. So that party you talk about takes place over pages and pages and pages. And not only that, but there are big digressions within the description of the party, for instance, where um, the narrator is reading about the Spanish Civil War and everything else. And it really feels like there are stories within stories and people make great big long speeches. And then within those speeches, there's another story and then something else is revealed. And the narrative narrative thread is, you know, feels like it's really wrapping around you and spiraling. And it's almost like the it's kind of like Russian dolls or dolls within dolls within dolls. And you keep finding new things, but also you get this sense of a, a big coil going round and round and round. And, you know, as it's very dizzying as a reader, but also exhilarating because after pages and pages, suddenly the, the thread, things will become clear again and you'll pick it up. And that's quite exhilarating. And it's really effective how he does that, how he suddenly pulls you back in and, you realize, oh yeah, we're heading somewhere. We're not just going around in circles. So for instance, we realize that the narrator has taken on this very strange job, uh, which is essentially, he's told he has a skill, isn't he? That he can read people really well and plainly and understand them and see into their motivations and see also the kind of, as you said, the way they will react to different situations. But the thing that isn't really clear is, so what like what's <laughs> what's this job for and what is what is it not only what is it for in this shady world of clandestine secret services that we're not quite clear what's going on there and, and what purpose all this is serving and we're also not clear as readers whether to take it at face value or whether something else is going on here is it for instance a big all-encompassing metaphor about being a writer and seeing into people as a novelist and being able to lay bare their soul in a way, I suppose, and and being able to predict their motivations because you're writing the story. Or is it something else about being a human being and how we interact with people and understand them and the truths we discover about them and the truths we perhaps hide from ourselves about them? So a lot of interesting questions come up and i i'm going to throw it back to you i don't know if there's any clear answers because clarity is not one of this book's qualities yeah i mean i think that um well first of all i'll make the observation that you know of the half dozen or so books that i've read of Moraes, there's there's some common themes and uh one of the themes and maybe i'll ask you whether whether this is in fact the case but it's usually former Oxford students or professors that are now working for British intelligence. <laughs> There's, if, to read Moraes, you would think that everyone that's involved, that, that works, that teaches at Oxford or that goes to Oxford eventually ends up in British intelligence. I don't know. Wait, <laughs> is, that, is that the case, Sam? Oh, man, I wish. Like, <laughs> uh, I, I, um, 
I don't know who these people are that become spies. I mean, obviously, I don't like. <laughs> they don't tell me their secrets. But I, uh, I, re- I have. I'm convinced I will be a great spy because I'm not a likely candidate in lots of ways. But you know, publishing really good cover. I can travel around <laughs> selling right. the books, and you know, I kind of. I feel like, why haven't I been tapped on the shoulder in this way? Of course, I might have been, and this could be doubling up my cover, and you're never going to know that. But yeah, so I'm no, I, this, I think it's one of the, it's, a, it's an aspect of British life that is romanticized in a way. And it's also, it's, it, but there's a real ugliness to it as well that I think Maria's plays with really well. That there is this idea that people who go to these elite universities do get these, taps on the shoulders and meet people over drinks and uh, brought into this world of lies and betrayal and everything else. And so one of the things that's referenced in the, the book quite often is the the famous case of the, the Cambridge Five, who uh, Kim Philby is probably the most famous. Yes. Of these, yeah, you've heard of him, who betrayed um, Britain and America essentially during the Cold War and ended up most of them living in Moscow and you know they were they were part of this Cambridge network who became part of the MI5 and MI6 the British spy agencies and who did were recruited in this very chummy clubbable way over dinner and everything else and were seen to be the right kind of fellow and actually turned out to be very much the wrong kind of fellow well i don't know i don't know whether Moraes was tapped on the shoulder, but he did spend two years, um, two years at Oxford teaching. I do know that. But there's also another aspect of this book in particular, Your Face Tomorrow, that is that is particularly autobiographical for Moreas. And that is that in the novel, Dez's father was uh, an opponent of Franco and was imprisoned for short time for it and also kind of I guess in a way kind of blackballed the rest of his life and that in fact happened to Moraes's father as well oh, he was shortly right? imprisoned and he was denied his teaching position after that his father was a philosopher and so that's a kind of an, just an interesting side note but this issue about the Spanish Civil War is really one that and the betrayals really I guess shadows this book quite a bit because of course when Deza finds out that Wheeler was kind of in Spain during the civil war and that that like leads to this frantic you know all night excursion through Wheeler's library to find references to Wheeler and some of these Spanish civil war history books and things that's something that that kind of we we see a lot in this book that Des is trying to think about, especially this best friend of his father, who is the one that kind of sent the authorities to Des's father. He he betrayed him in the worst way and kind of implicated him in things that he wasn't guilty of, but just you know to to gain favor, I guess, and to save him himself. You know he was pointing the finger and naming other people, and then the. The character Dez's maternal uncle also uh, was murdered in the Spanish Civil War, and we read about that. And so that's something that I think if we're looking for like a motivation as to why this guy would kind of like 
take this kind of weird job. Maybe that's maybe that's one of the motivating factors is that he's in, he's very much intrigued by this issue of what causes someone who you know or you think very much that you know, like his father thought he knew his best friend to kind of become someone else or was that person always that other person but you just didn't see them because you couldn't tell what their face tomorrow really was going to be when circumstances changed and the screws got tightened yeah it's interesting isn't it i think this is one of the the really fascinating aspects of the book both from a psychological and a historical perspective and i, I don't know what it's like for, for you laurie and, and people in the states but the book made me realize how little I knew certainly about the aftermath of the Spanish Civil War, really. You know, I knew quite a lot about before I read Hemingway, of course, and George Orwell's Homage to Catalonia, and as I walked out one morning by Laurie Lee. And um, as Maria says, for for those people, the, the Spanish Civil War kind of finished in 1937. They, they were run out of Spain, and, um, you know, it was very clear that the Republican side would going to lose by then and that was the end of it and everyone got distracted by the second world war and that's kind of where historical knowledge for people outside spain i think it quite often finishes there but of course it went on for years and years and years both because people were dealing with the repercussions of what was what had happened in the war but also because franco was there for so long and you know <laughs> and there is you know they're still dealing with the aftermath in, in spain now of course and it's a it's a fascinating part of the book that it it lets you know that these things are not easily forgotten and that there are reverberations that continue down the years and continue through families and continue inside the minds of people which is where it gets really complicated and interesting in the novel and as you say um this this worry about what people are going to do and how they're going to react to things and how far you can trust them and why they might betray you, why they might kill you even. It's uh, it's fascinating. Yeah, it really is. I will say that of all of the Marais novels that I've read, this one has the least kind of focus or emphasis on the romantic relationship. Because in my experience with Marais novels, like The Infatuations, Like a Heart So White, Thus Bad Begins, Berta Isla, there's this very um, prominent conflict between the protagonist who is leading this secret, secret career. And the career is kind of all encompassing. It kind of overtakes your life. You know, if you're a spy, you're not working nine to five in an office, you know, you're doing like really weird stuff. You're traveling places for unlimited or undetermined number of days or months. You can't tell your partner, your spouse, where you're going, what you're doing. They don't know whether you're going to come back alive or when you come back, if you come back and whether it's going to be next week or next year. And so there's, um, in many of the books, he kind of explores this tension between these this necessary secret between the couple that is so kind of omnipresent that it that it 
that it leads, it can spill over to distrust, as you can imagine, in their in their personal lives and in, in the relationship and connection that they have. Now, I will say that this is the first part of a trilogy, Fever and Spear, of the Your Face Tomorrow trilogy. And so I would imagine that in the subsequent volumes that I have not read yet, that we will hear more about Louisa and our protagonist, Jaime Deza, will become uh, romantically involved maybe with other people, or maybe, you know, Louisa will come back into the picture more prominently. But um, that's one of the different things about this novel, I think. And I wouldn't necessarily say it's a criticism because I really love this novel too. But to me, that that is, an, is a compelling element and what makes so many of his books really fascinating. And just as a little bit of a plug, I will say that his latest novel that's been translated into English, Berta Isla, tells the story from Berta Isla's perspective. She's the wife in the book. And just last year, Moreas came out with a novel called Tomas Nevinson, which has not been translated into English yet, but it is the story of Berta's husband, Tomas, who's the spy. And so we're going to hear kind of the world through his perspective. So um, I loved Berta Isla. So I'm really looking forward to this one. I keep looking on my my bookseller's websites, like, when is this one going to become available? And I almost want, and I looked last night preparing for this conversation to see whether like Margaret Jewell Cost is talking about like the translation or how close she is to finishing it. But I can't wait to read that one too. (laughs) I guess the other thing to say about that is that the the domestic details we do get, if domestic details is the right word, in in Fever and Spear are really a part of the book that I think I most enjoyed. So there's these really poignant failed phone calls that the narrator is making back to his estranged wife and kids in Spain. There's real sadness and tenderness there and also we get these these little funny glimpses of his home life so he lives in a flat in a square in london and on the other side of the square he's got a neighbor who he often sees through his window dancing and uh dancing as if no one can see him although actually and you know i think you can read that this is quite a heavy metaphor you know that the narrator can see him so what he thinks he's not revealing to anyone he is very clearly revealing to to the narrator and certainly if i was dancing and no one can see me i imagine oh no i'm getting myself in a real tangle here if i was dancing <laughs> and i thought no one could see me but someone could actually see me that person would think that i look ridiculous and that's very much <laughs> the way it goes in in fever and spear and it's it's funny but it's it's also really sad and um what else i mean i really i really felt for the guy who's doing the dancing kind of thought oh well good for you but it's it's strange uh and what a an unusual and unexpected detail it is and very different from the tenor of lots of the book where everything is shadowy and highly intellectual you know with people making these great long speeches about history and all kinds of other things and then we've got this guy bouncing around in his flat yeah i i really don't have a intelligent theory about (laughs) what the dancer (laughs) indicates here although i i will say that there there is this 
there is this mood, I think, around this whole novel of of loneliness. And, you know, I you get the feeling that that Jaime Deza is, is a lonely person. He's not with his family. He really only has one friend, Wheeler. And, you know, he's kind of, I think that there is almost an inevitability to his loneliness because his his mind is so seeped in in betrayal and and intrigue and you know trying to determine the authenticity of people that it would almost it would it would be a lonely career i think uh, to be this kind of suspicious of people on on the face of it and i don't know maybe the maybe the dancers just like a lonely person, you know, dancing by himself in in the apartment. I don't know. Yes, <laughs> I think you're right. I, there's certainly that element. Although he does sometimes have a, a dance partner with him. You're right. Yeah, uh, and I suppose I think everything you say is true, and clearly these are, are really prominent themes in the novel. But I guess the the other thing about it is that it's it's funny. It's straightforwardly funny, and this is obviously a novelist who while talking about these very involved and dark themes also has a, a real sense of humor i mean there's a there's a lot of things in the novel that that made me laugh and were <laughs> sometimes you know outrageously like there's a, a discussion of um kind of secretions they're called that people are sexually attracted to that was <laughs> really funny and that bozo at the party you were talking about the de- depiction of this terrible misogynist sexist guy is really awful and funny there are really good jokes about um there's a line about how the terrible english that princess diana spoke which is <laughs> it's it, which is true and, you know, it's one of those, it's funny because it's true. And also because, you know, she is, ah, she has this saintly reputation and people right. don't, uh, ridiculously don't say anything bad about her. Um, and so he kind of, he crosses that line and, you know, prods you in that way and makes you feel uncomfortable. And, you know, the laughter comes out of that. And there are lots of really cutting lines. Like there's a great interjection. You have to bear in mind that most people are stupid. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, so. It, it, there's that element of the book too, and maybe maybe he just found the image of the guy dancing in his flat funny is is part of it. Yeah, I mean, most of the book, you know, you are in this very buttoned up intellectual world of you know tweed suits and kind of arcane knowledge, and you know, very very kind of a, a, a professional almost like an intimidatingly severe atmosphere. And then he does kind of break that up with these kind of funny, funny anecdotes or, or, or funny scenes. I wanted to get to something that comes up at almost the very end of the book. And I don't think we're really necessarily giving a spoiler alert here and talking about this, but this book is the first Marais novel that, I've encountered that actually has some illustrations in it. And these come at the end of the book. And it so happens that um, Deza finds out from Wheeler that Wheeler is kind of, what do I want to say, a connoisseur of these campaign posters that were prevalent during World War II. 
And they were called the part of the careless talk campaign, which I had never heard about before in all of the books that I've read that I thought I knew about kind of what it was like in London during uh, World War II. But um, can you tell us a little bit about this careless talk campaign, Sam? I can tell you, yeah, little is probably the operative word. I mean, uh, it was a campaign in, in World War II. It's careless talk cost lives is the idea. And there were lots of posters that were given around within the army in particular, warning people not to give away secrets or anything really that could be useful to the enemy. So for instance, the reason why a train has been held up could potentially be useful or become propaganda. And there were a lot of poster campaigns relating to it. And they went out to the general public as well. I, I don't know on the on what kind of scale, but you know, it's one of the things when you're growing up in the UK, you quite often see these pictures. So the pictures that were, were in the book, lots of them were pretty familiar to me, these old wartime posters. And I guess I guess it's due to the fact that there was, and I, I, I assume justifiably so, this kind of assumption or maybe even some knowledge that there were German spies everywhere. And so was that, is that the case that like you had to be careful what you were saying because you, there could be someone that's working for the fascists that you just don't know is, is in fact. Yeah, that's the ostensible purpose. <laughs> so it's, you know, not giving away logistics, not giving anything that could be useful to the enemy. But I think that those kind of poster campaigns, they're propaganda as well. They're, yeah. they're there to remind people that we are at war and that things are different and to make them suspicious and fearful and hateful and you know prepared to go out there and put their lives on the line. It all feeds into that general propaganda campaign. And those propaganda campaigns... They're looked back now in the UK with a certain kind of rosiness. You know, people often talk of the blitz spirit and all of this kind of stuff. But I think actually the reality is during the war, this paternal state led, what's the best way of describing it? All these, these guides to behavior and telling people what they had to do and how they had to react to things were actually quite often met with mixed feelings. So there was a campaign during the blitz saying Britain can take it, for instance, which is very often invoked, you know, by ridiculous Brexiters here in, in the UK, uh. these stupid nationalists. But actually at the time, an awful lot of people were <laughs> found these campaigns infuriating because, you know, their house has been blown up, their, their mum's been killed and terrible things are happening to them. And they're just told, you can take it, it's fine. And it it's not... Stiff upper lip. Yeah, exactly. None, none of these things are entirely straightforward. And I think that's very much something that Marias is telling us as well, that there are complications to everything. Yeah. So I was really, it, it felt a little bit odd to see these, these illustrations suddenly show up in the book, but I was really glad that, that they were included because for someone like me that does, didn't know about this careless talk campaign, um, it would have been hard for me to visualize them or really understand it. My favorite, Sam, is this one where we see some, some gentlemen kind of, I'll use a Texas term here, yucking it up with <laughs> a, a beautiful, curvaceous blonde who's sitting there rather smug. And the poster says, keep mom 
she's not so dumb. I don't mean to be flippant about a very serious or or scary time, but I mean, these just seem like so dated and preposterous now that it was it was really rather entertaining to to look at them. Yeah. Well, you say they're dated and preposterous. I wonder, quite a few people at the time probably thought they were preposterous as well, much like, you know, current government propaganda is reviewed as ridiculous. And that's probably part of the reason that they weren't as universally popular as it's often supposed. One of them, I think, is particularly kind of pertinent to the book and what Des is going through and remembering what happened to his father. It shows, it's just like four panels and it shows people talking, a guy and a gal talking, two women talking, et cetera. And it says, telling a friend may mean telling the enemy. So it's this, you know, kind of really fomenting this distrust. But I think the fascinating thing about the insertion of of this subject in this book is what Wheeler kind of conveys to Deza about this whole this whole campaign. And he's kind of critical of it insofar as he tells Deza that it actually in some cases had a blowback effect because, you know, you had these campaign posters like this out amongst the public. And it actually made many people think that they really did have some in, important information or they really did know something that maybe not everyone knew that maybe that maybe had some some not obvious or explicit import and so it almost encouraged people to blab even more about things because it's kind of human nature that when when you think that you that you know something important that others might not know or that you have a secret your natural human inclination and temptation is you can't wait to tell someone else <laughs> yeah i mean as we've been told in the book people are stupid <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, that's definitely one of the things it emphasizes and talking of things it emphasizes just then when you were talking about these betrayals i want to read a quote from the book that i think some yes. a lot of it which is something the narrator said his father told him and it's something that you he describes it as what awaits everyone to a greater or lesser extent. And he tells it that this is something you begin to learn in childhood, which is that we are in for betrayal, tale-telling, treachery, backstabbing, denunciation, calumny, defamation, accusation. <laughs> and then it just that goes on and on and on these terrible ways that we're, you know, we're going to be ruined and given away and our expectations are going to be undermined and bad things are going to happen to us. And you know, it's, I'm laughing, but it's pretty grim. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can imagine I've had, when you were reading that, like a weird image in my mind of like a school teacher with like 10 year olds, like pounding all these horrible, <laughs> horrible words into their heads about what they have to look forward to in life. It's, it's so much of what I can say. I think that that is really what motivates a lot of Moraes's writing. And it, it, it is dark, but I don't know. It's it's hard for me to really adequately explain why I love his work. I love the chewiness of the sentences. I love the fact that 
there's a lot of kind of ideas in the writing, but also just this, this so precise exploration or excavation of intentions that I think, I don't know, it just fascinates me. Yeah, I can see why now. <laughs> so will you have more Moraes in your future? <laughs> uh, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I've got All Souls right here and I should read it. And you have had on like right on your desk gathering dust, I guess, for a few years now. Yes. No, a few months. Not not quite. A few long. months. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, then then enough. I'm totally <laughs> totally going to give you a, a break because <laughs> God knows I haven't had any books that I've intended to read for you know for a few months laying around. That's could yeah. There's a <laughs> uh, there's always too many books and uh, not enough time to read them. But thank you for reading some Moraes with me and. I haven't read All Souls myself, so maybe we can read that one together too. That would be fun. Yeah, it sounds like a good idea. All right. Thank you, Sam. Thanks, Laurie. 